targeted a system of tunnels and caves that ISIS fighters used to move around freely, making it easier for them to target U.S. military advisors and Afghan forces in the area. The United States takes the fight against ISIS very seriously, and in order to defeat the group, we must deny them operational space, which we did. What I do is I authorize my military. We have the greatest military in the world, and they've done a job as usual. So we have given them total authorization. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. The Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, Thursday, April 13th, 2017. Welcome to the Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast today. Um, a busy news day now. Uh, everything that's going on in the world uh, in foreign policy Today is going to be a foreign policy episode. Uh, we have Tanisha Tingle-Smith on the program today. You may remember her. She was on the podcast uh, previously back uh, in March, about a month ago. She is a former State Department official, uh, also advised uh, not only the State Department, but the Treasury Department and the CIA. She joins me to talk about immigration policies as it pertains uh, to mainly economic issues, but we also get into the opioid epidemic you know immigration is so intertwined, and we've discussed this a lot with uh, Michael Cutler, a uh, retired immigration agent, uh, but Tanisha uh, was fantastic because uh, she brings a different element to it in terms of uh, you know communicating with other governments, uh, the Mexico-U.S. relations, uh, Latin America. That's her focus, but we're going to lead off the, uh, the show today talking about uh, this uh, non-nuclear bomb that was dropped on ISIS fighters in Afghanistan, uh, Thursday, uh, 7 o'clock uh, local time in the evening in Afghanistan. Uh, we heard about this this morning. So just to give you the details on what we know, there's a lot that we still don't know, of course, because uh, it's classified. But uh, what happened today is that the U.S. military uh, dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb in the Air Force arsenal on eastern Afghanistan days after a Green Beret was killed fighting ISIS in the area. Now, uh, the government is saying that it has nothing to do with the loss of, of life. The uh, staff sergeant from Maryland, Mark Dealancar, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, was the hero that was killed last week in Afghanistan. Now, the bomb sends a message to the entire world like the Syria, the uh, Syria strike did last week, a week ago today. This is a very uh, deadly bomb. It is the GBU-43B, which is a 21,000-pound conventional bomb dropped on uh, an ISIS tunnel complex in the uh, Nangar uh, province in East Af- uh, eastern Afghanistan. Now, um, for those that don't know this area, and you, know, you can look up a map online. I've been looking at the map a lot today. Um, this area is inhabited by ISIS and the Taliban there. And there are, the way that it's uh, set up in terms of uh, geography, 
is that it is near the Pakistani border, so uh, there were concerns about uh, civilians there. They, you heard in the intro clip, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said that they made every effort, and the Defense uh, Department uh, issued a statement on the matter saying that uh, they made sure uh, to avoid civilian casualties. Uh, this is with a statement actually from uh, General John Nicholson, commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, read, uh, quote, as ISIS losses have mounted, they're using IEDs, bunkers, and tunnels to thicken their defense. This is the right munition to reduce these obstacles and maintain the momentum of our offensive against the Islamic State. Um, now, the, uh, so they made the precautions uh, about civilians, but this bomb um, would is has a radius of a mile long. Uh, and so... Anything in that area, including the tunnels, people in the tunnels, which are inhabited by ISIS, uh, ISIS killers there, um, would be dead. Um, and so that uh, that non-nuclear bomb uh, has also never been used before, and it is so heavy, again, 21,000 pounds, just for comparison, the... Tomahawk missiles that were launched on Syria in uh, the Syrian airstrike last week, those are actually only 1,000 pounds. This is 21,000 pounds. Um, it had to be it's so big, it's called a Massive Ordnance Air Blast, MOAB, or mother of all bombs, as it is, as it is uh, colloquially uh, referred to, uh, was dropped out of the back of U.S. Air Force C-130 cargo plane. Um, and so it is this massive bomb with a uh, massive um, uh, damage that is done by this. And it does a couple of things, of course, in terms of sending a message. Um, it was first tested in 2003 after um, we went into Iraq, um, and it hasn't been used until uh, today. Um so this is, what, the fifth um, military move, uh, the second major one that uh, that comes uh, in the Trump administration. Um, this air uh, blast, again, a, a blast radius of one mile wide, it is intended for use against tunnels. So the ISIS fighters there are in these tunnels, the Taliban, and uh, they've been, uh, like uh, the statement read, they're using IEDs and at bunkers to uh, to defend themselves. So the United States, now you remember, President Trump has said what? We are going to eradicate ISIS off the face of the earth. Uh, it is defeating this radical ideology. We talk about that in an interview a little bit with Tanisha Tinglesmith. Uh, a radical uh, Islamic um, extremism that is uh, rampant in the area. You are dealing with a region uh, that is uh, has been a stronghold for ISIS since 2015, uh, shares the border with Pakistan, which is a sovereign nation. Uh, there were an estimated 1,000 ISIS Afghan fighters in the area where the blast uh, today, where the uh, where the uh, MOAB, the Massive Ordnance Air Blast, was uh, set off by uh, the U.S. bombs. Uh, President Trump said that he had to authorize his military to act in accordance with how they see fit, um, which is a changed for the past eight years where you had uh, the military asking for permission from the West Wing for everything, uh, which really 
tied their hands in defeating ISIS. They even had a policy where they had to ask ISIS fighters, are you ISIS? That was their policy in the past eight years. And now we are going after them to defeat them, to defeat the ideology, make sure that it doesn't come here and eradicate them off the face of the earth as the commander-in-chief has promised throughout the campaign ends on January 20th on the uh, on Inauguration Day. Uh, now, not only does this say to ISIS, we're coming to get you, Murdoch, it's a Rambo reference, not only are we going to get you and, and going to uh, destroy the enemy and uh, the biggest enemy that, uh, that we have uh, had in, in some time, uh, which is very, it's not as concrete as you may think, is his ideology, because they influence people here. We've had attacks, some sadly recent, uh, you know, but the San Bernardino attack, Boston bombing, 9-11, all inspired by a mindset, by an ideology, influenced. And so President Trump taking decisive action today on that, his administration, the military, uh, putting this uh, this bomb in ISIS's backyard. Now, what does it also do? It sends a message to North Korea, who the, earlier this week, as we've covered, uh, as we have talked about and covered here on the podcast, North Korea has said that uh, they are considering war against the U.S. Now, what you have to keep in mind is that while this is not pretty, it's not fun to talk about, it's necessary. Uh, when you have, when the U.S. is, and we'll talk about the, the politics of it in a moment, um, but when you have an ideology uh, like this that is so vicious that has infiltrated our nation and Europe through immigration conversation for, for later in the interview, um, it is so necessary to take this type of action and to send a message around the world that America is back. That's what he did in Syria, President Trump did in Syria last week. Uh, now the Pentagon and the Defense Department, uh, the military, ordering this uh, bomb, uh, which really tells the world, especially North Korea, who has, uh, again, uh, said that they are considering war against the U.S., tells them, you build up a nuclear arsenal, we will act, and we will act quickly. Now, we're only in this situation, folks, because of the last eight years that we've seen of Obama drawing red lines, not acting upon it. Uh, Barack Hussein Obama not uh, decisive in action, asking Congress, taking forever. You know, Congress's approval rating is so low, it's even lower than the media. And Obama decided to blame others. Obama decided uh, to appease North Korea. You know, if anyone is an isolationist, it would be Obama and his policies and the way that he operated, operating through drone strikes that were very ineffective. They killed a lot of civilians, by the way. And that's some of the blowback today with this. So there, there are the political implications of this, and then there is the other side, and what are they saying? Well— all right, let me get into what the other side is saying because uh, going through a lot of comments today and seeing what people are talking about from you know both sides, uh, mainly this has been uh, this has been praised by Republicans and it's been praised by Democrats too. But there are a lot of liberals today are uh, saying that um, 
uh, one thing that I read, uh, some people are actually arguing to combat ISIS with compassion and love. This is no joke. Um, where they actually are saying, well, if by launching this uh, bomb, this uh, non-nuclear uh, weapon, very destructive uh, weapon, there are people actually saying that by doing this, it is um, th uh, that it is just going to fuel more terrorism. And there are liberals who are saying, uh, well, you know, love stops hate, and bombings only create more ISIS. This is what people are saying. This is no joke. Um, yeah, because, you know, when you look at this situation, uh, I'd like to be sarcastic, but I won't be. When you look at this situation, okay, love uh, does not stop hate. I'm sorry. But what are we going to do? Hug ISIS fighters? Okay, they are killers. They will use any weapon of choice. I mean, there was an insane story in, uh, out of Stockholm that a newspaper actually said that Sweden's best-selling newspaper said that they should ban trucks to stop terrorism in Sweden. This is after the Stockholm attack last Friday. That's insane. Okay, you're going to ban trucks now because of radical Islamic terror. If you deal with the root problem, which is the ideology, which is this mindset, which is the fact that people are getting radicalized for whatever. They may have self-confidence issues, and they believe that ISIS is going to snap them out of it. And they believe that they're doing this in the name of Allah. This is a sick mindset, okay? And so this has nothing to do with the weapon of choice. This has to do with them and their goal to destroy American freedom and American values. And the stupidity, the sheer stupidity and idiocy from the left today over this, saying, well, love stops hate, and bombings only create more ISIS, and this is going to fuel a war on terrorism. Folks, I hate to tell you this. We're in a war. We've been in war. And we've been in Afghanistan. We've been in Iraq. This is nothing new. Now, it doesn't lead the evening news every night, so people aren't aware of it, but we still have Americans dying fighting for us, fighting for our freedom. Uh, the... Staff Sergeant that I told you before, Mark De La Carr, died last week from Maryland and our military. There are still people being killed, our, our people. And this region, like I said, which is owned by ISIS in 2015, you're not going to have peace in this area, and we're there. So if we leave like we did in Iraq but pull out too soon, ISIS is going to take over more. If Assad and Syria, we'll get to him in a second, if we abandon, and we already have troops in Syria, if we abandon Syria, you can have ISIS take over Assad, okay? So there are certain aspects, and a lot of people are saying, and we'll get to the politics in a second in terms of Trump's policies shifting a little bit. Um, and there are people saying, well, I don't think this is going to help Trump's base. He, you know, I think people are smart enough to realize that America's stance in the world is very important. And when you have a radical ideology in this, you know, coming off a uh, eight years of globalist policies that have harmed us, you can't just switch into a, a mode of we're going to be in our own bubble. It doesn't work that way. Uh, as much as the ideal is only focused on our own country, you also have other nations that are in very weak states. And immigration policies there that is harming them. 
And if you leave the door open for ISIS to take over, they will create a caliphate and they will set up shop in Syria. And then how is that going to be for our Israeli allies? How is that going to be when they're flooding the uh, flooding Europe and then they come in here while President Trump's travel suspension is still being tied up in the courts? And frankly, the politicians and, and judges who have blocked that for political reasons, they're going to have blood on their hands. This is no joke. We've been at war for uh, 2017. We've been at war since 2001 to 9-11. So while it may not be leading the headlines every day, people are still dying. Uh, people have to realize that. So when you hear from the left today, the idiocy coming from them, saying that they're that th that we need to stop terrorism with love, you're insane. You are absolutely insane. They're beheading people. This is the Holy Week. Good Friday is tomorrow, which we won't have a podcast unless it's breaking news. Uh, just to give you a heads up out of respect, we will be off Friday, we will be off Sunday's show, no show this week, and then uh, Monday the day after Easter as well. Uh, just out of respect for the Easter holiday and, of course, uh, uh, people who are going to church, uh, you know, uh, will uh, we'll take off. Um, so, but you have this Holy Week in Egypt, two terrorist attacks on Palm Sunday where they are persecuting Christians. Christians are the minority religion there, and they're chopping their heads off. They want to bring that here. They tell women how to dress, how to drive, that they can't leave the house without a male supervision. Uh, Jewish people are persecuted as well in many of these Middle Eastern countries. But we're going to fight ISIS with love. You're an idiot if you believe that. I'm sorry, there's no way to cut that, except you were a total bonehead if you believe that we are going to fight ISIS with love and compassion, you're absolutely off the rails, okay? The only way to defeat ISIS is to eradicate them, is to defeat this ideology, to promote American values. Now, this is an effort that needs to be communicated to the American people. Now, I'm not saying discuss specifics because I've always thought, even before Trump said it, that why are we going to reveal our military game plan? It doesn't make sense. But you have to communicate with the American people that, listen, we are at war. We've been at war since George W. Bush. And we have troops already in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. By the way, for to a lesser extent, Yemen and Somalia. That's where our troops are right now. You have China's troops, which it seems like, and I'll get into China and North Korea in a moment, and Syria. Uh, you have... China troops, Chinese troops that are at the border uh, right now of Syria. And you have – so there are a lot of foreign policy interests that America has. And unfortunately, we can't just withdraw troops from a region because we believe that it is not our fight to be into. Uh, and this is where you, know, uh, you have to be fair-minded on this and you have to see both sides of it. But you're not going to defeat ISIS. You're not going to defeat the ideology – without communicating to the American people that um, this is, the plan has to be, and I don't have all the answers, but the plan has to consist of two things, military action, and number two has to be a American values um, efforts uh, to promote our American values, to promote liberty, to revisit our Declaration of Independence. And if I am the Trump 
campaign. If I am uh, Sean Spicer, if I'm Sarah Huckabee, the deputy press secretary, I'm putting forth a campaign, a PR campaign, to promote the Declaration of Independence, to promote our values, to promote what our country stands for, which is not anything ISIS stands for. And in order to defeat them, we need to eradicate them. We need to kill ISIS. Okay, and there's no compassion in it. War is not fun. It is ugly. But in the same regard, if America doesn't do anything, we've already seen attacks in this country. We're going to see more and we're going to have innocent Americans die. And there have been some civilian deaths. I know that's been a big news topic. Um, Unfortunately, civilians have died. There was one Tomahawk missile that went awry. The others, it's amazing the technology. The others in Syria, all fi- uh, 58 out of 59 Tomahawk missiles actually launched up in the air. They were all launched up in the air at different times. And then they come together in unison to hit the air base, Sharan Air Base in Syria. And they're, and they're all in unison. One got, a, got awry and I guess killed, I think, 16 innocent people. And it's unfortunate. And it stinks. But it's that... It's either we act or we're going to have another 9-11. I'm being serious. Serious as serious could be. Um, On the politics front. So you have these crazy people who are saying we're going to fight ISIS with compassion and love. That's insanity. Now, the politics of this. Does it help President Trump politically? I don't know. What the conversation is today, and I don't really care about whether it helps President Trump politically. And frankly, he doesn't care and I hope he doesn't care. Because it is about keeping the American people safe. And when you're present, you have a lot of responsibility to keep our country safe from terrorism. And there are decisions, very hard decisions, that you have to make. And I don't think any of us can fathom that or put ourselves in that position. So given that respect for the office, for the enormity of the decision-making that President Trump is left with, knowing that uh, the— Oval Office must feel like the loneliest place right now to be. Putting that in that perspective, the people saying, and there's a lot of conversation, I really don't know uh, how how many Trump supporters are disappointed by uh, our um, intervening, for lack of a better term, but I think they understand that President Trump has heart, as we talked about on Sunday. President Trump was definitely changed and moved by the Syria chemical weapons attack on its own people that Syria is denying today. More on that in a second. I will get to, to those national security issues, but I do want to hammer on this terrorist attack, uh, on this uh, bomb today and and this uh, foreign policy uh, in, a, in a political picture. And the fact that, you know, President Trump did campaign on America first. Uh, we are not going to get into other nation's conflicts the thing is here is that we're already involved uh and if we don't do if we don't act i'm sure he's getting the best advice from his national security council and from uh from staffers in the pentagon uh general uh hr mcmaster among others and you know general mattis if you don't change, if you don't have flexibility, 
that's not good because that means you're telling other nations this is what we're going to do. This is the, these. The, this is our policy, and if you cross that line, well, too bad. We're not going to do, do anything. That's what Obama did, and he failed. Eight years. Disgusting, okay? Because of him, we have ISIS, okay? So you're dealing with a situation where if you don't send a message, if you don't— um, don't make the world understand that we are our interests lie with freedom and with democracy and you don't send the message using our vast arsenal and peace through strength they will step all over us so in order to have peace you have to you have to have strength that's been the common denominator for the Trump administration is we are strong and we are not going to be pushed around, nor let innocent people be killed, and children, and babies. And that's what we're seeing. And um, if you are paying attention to the news around the world, it is a very upsetting time how much evil there is in this world. It's alarming, it is upsetting, it is scary. And we have to make sure it doesn't come here. And in order to do that, you have to operate by pushing strength to promote peace. It's the only way to do it. And so President Trump may be switching a little bit and saying, listen, the Syria, uh, Syria chemical weapons attack changed me. I see things a little differently in terms of that. I think that is good that he has flexibility, that he can adjust to – world events and see that, you know what, uh, if we don't do anything, this is only going to come here and harm us. So it's a, ne a necessity for the office to adjust, to, uh, you know, make those halftime adjustments and say, time out, what, what, are, what are the options and evaluate everything. Don't put anything off the table. At this point, as far as North Korea is concerned, we will fight you if we have to remove King, Kim Jong-un, and now remember, I talked about it on here as people suggested that Kim Jong-un should be assassinated. That's an option, and we're not going to take it off the table, especially with what they're doing. Now, let me talk about, because we talked about this yesterday, but there were some new developments. Oh, by the way, just one last note on Afghan, because I have the story here. In terms of Afghanistan and where the Taliban is, they have been planting... Uh, minefields there, killing innocent people. Do you want to talk about innocent civilians dying? Afghanistan has the highest number of mine victims in the world, which along with roadside bombs kill or uh, or would an estimated 140 people every month in Afghanistan. This is what the Taliban and ISIS fighters are doing in Afghanistan. So innocent civilians are dying by the hundreds every month. We sent a message to them and said, we're going to eradicate you, all of them. Uh, in Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad today, in an interview with the AFP news agency, which is in France, um, called the uh, Syrian, uh, saying that the responsibility does not lie on Syria, He, uh, the fact that he's being blamed for the chemical weapons attack, he has called this, quote, a 100% fabrication, just like John Kerry and Obama said that 100% of chemical weapons were removed from Syria. 
So he says this is a fabrication. You know, Russia has been trying to cover this up, and that's what some of the reports are coming out from the UN and, and others saying that Russia is complicit in this attack. In fact, they spotted a drone, a Russian drone, over the area in Syria of the Sharat Air Base shortly after the chemical weapons attack, which shows that they were trying, then they bombed the hospital. To go, go to show you that they are working to cover it up and protect Bashar al-Assad, which they have done. Uh, new numbers coming out. I mean, we've said that there, um, from the numbers that I've seen, about uh, 10 chemical weapons attacks since 2013. I think there have been seven just in this year alone from some of the reporting that we're hearing today. Of course, that doesn't always grab the headlines, but these pictures were so utterly gruesome and deplorable uh, there's no way, uh, it, there's only so many words to describe this heinous attack on innocent civilians. Bashar al-Assad said that he gave no order to make the attack and claimed that even if we had chemical weapons, we wouldn't use them. Uh, he has been pushing, now Russia pushed this first, so I'm going to show you the connection here. We told you the other day, Russia has been, uh, pushing the fact that this is U.S. propaganda. Uh, now, U.S. officials are saying, the CIA coming out tonight, saying that uh, Russia is pushing uh, the, as he said, she said situation, but Russia is pushing propaganda uh, to make the United States look bad and actually frame the United States in this attack. This is how nuts they are. And Russia-U.S. relations are at a, quote, all-time low, according to our Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, and President Donald Trump. Uh, the Russians and the Syrians are saying that the videos of the attack are propaganda designed to prompt the retaliatory U.S. strike two days later. I mean, talk about insanity. This guy is real—he's a murderous dictator, totally off the rails. So he's saying that he didn't do anything. Of course he's going to say that because now he sees that his days may be numbered like ISIS days are numbered. Now, that's in Syria and Russia as Tillerson is— in Moscow, met with Putin yesterday, said that relations are on an all-time low. So we'll see what happens in terms of that. Now, a shift uh, of Russia policy and China policy. Well, not really a shift. That's how it's being described today. But in reality, what did President Trump, how has President Trump operated his life? It is always about a negotiation. And so yesterday, we told you about China and that he said, you know what? We'll We'll eat the $337 billion trade deficit if Xi Jinping of China tells North Korea to cut it out. They have tremendous power over North Korea. They control practically their economy. They control their food source and their oil source. So China could cut them off, and China could tell North Korea, if you don't act, then we'll be fine. If you do act and you build a nuclear arsenal— then we will have to cut you off. And that will be a deterrent, an economic deterrent to North Korea. So President Trump is being, you know, buttering uh, Xi Jinping up a little bit today, saying he has a lot of respect for him and that uh, he's a good man. Um, yeah, because if China, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the $337 billion trade deficit that existed that is still uh, ridiculous and China is ripping us off economically. There, there are a lot of issues there in terms of Chinese goods that are coming here that are being overtaxed that's trickling down to the consumer. 
we actually talk about taxes and uh, that being involved with immigration with Tanisha Tingle-Smith coming up. But Trump says, we'll eat that. Fine. We'll take it. Deal with North Korea. And that's the bigger issue because it's North Korea who is uh, talking about uh, a, uh, a nut and Kim Jong-un, someone who is trying to wield nuclear power and has been testing ballistic missiles, even with sanctions, even with the international community, uh, you know, uh, condemning it. And, of course, you know, I, I hate the fact that, oh, they issued a statement condemning it. They do nothing. They're all talk, no action. The U.N., I told you yesterday, rendered useless because they can't even act on Syria because Russia, their biggest ally, blocks a resolution. How the hell could they block a resolution against a murderer is beyond me. But back on to North Korea. This guy, Kim Jong-un, who's expected to launch another ballistic missile test uh, this weekend because of a anniversary in North Korea that celebrates the founder of this regime, they may very well have a test this weekend. And if they build up a nuclear arsenal, if they learn enough from these ballistic missile tests that they can hit the United States, uh, there are some reporting on NBC News. I don't know how they get this, but they're saying that the U.S. would launch a preemptive strike. Now, we're not there yet, and that's a key. We are not there at this point. But we need to make sure that North Korea does not have that power, especially under this regime. So it is going to be crucial more than ever for the Trump administration to negotiate with China and see, we're allies with China when it comes to North Korea and making sure that North Korea doesn't kill our people, our United States citizens. So in order to do that, we need to play with China. And it would be great, it really would be great if one day we can have world peace and one day we can come together as a world. We're just, there, there's so much evil out there that there are allies in certain situations and in others, there's no negotiation. That U.S.-Russia relations are an all-time low. And President Trump knew this, and this is why President Trump said it would not criticize Vladimir Putin during the campaign. And it was very clear, he discussed it, why am I going to criticize someone I don't know before I get into office? I need some leverage there to be able to negotiate and hope that another nuclear power in Russia doesn't hurt us. So there are so many facets, okay, to foreign policy that um, it takes a lot to dissect this, especially different parts of the world that just play by totally different roles of totally different politics. Um, it's a scary time in terms of foreign policy. Now, if you live under a rock and have no idea what's going on, God bless you. But in Washington, you can see the president's getting older by the hour because it is... It is a scary time in terms of uh, nuclear powers that are coming up, and we're lucky that we have President Trump in there, a person that is not going to take any nonsense and will send a message to North Korea. And will send a bomb, drop a bomb on ISIS and say, we're defeating this ideology. A big change from the past eight years. But the foreign policy here uh, is very sticky. It's very tricky because there are, you know, there are certain areas where on economics— we may have problems with a nation like China. But in terms of national security, we may need them. Even a communist in uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, but it is very complicated. It really is. 
and that's scary. But the Afghanistan uh, bomb today on ISIS was a necessary message uh, to the world there and, and to ISIS. We're coming to get you. Your days are a number. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about foreign policy in a little different way. We're going to talk about immigration with uh, Tanisha Tingle-Smith. She's a former State Department uh, official. She advised the State Treasury and the CIA. Uh, she's on Wall Street, uh, a specialist in international uh, relations of emerging economy countries. And so we talk about uh, many issues as it relates to immigration, President Trump's policies, and good uh, foreign policy and uh, geopolitical uh, policy uh, there in uh, Europe and with uh, some of our allies. So uh, Tanisha Tingle-Smith coming up after the break, and uh, we'll continue on the Neil A. Crucial Show podcast on this Thursday, the 13th of April. Get engaged. Hey, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Oh. They're prisons! <laughs> Man-made prisons! You're doing time! Not that type of engagement. Get engaged with the Neela Caruso Show podcast by subscribing on iTunes and following Neela Caruso on Twitter, Instagram, and his official Facebook page so you don't miss out on the important things in life. The Neela Caruso Show podcast. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Or not. M2. Or not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah. Street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Indoor baseball, anyone? Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. President Reagan, and neither will you. Passionate talk and real solutions for America on the Neelay Caruso Show podcast. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. NeelayCaruso.com Now joining us on the Neelay Caruso Show podcast is global political analyst and former State Department official Tanisha Tingle-Smith. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to come on again. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you this afternoon. So immigration has been on the forefront of President Trump's agenda. Um, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions earlier this week announced a new wave of immigration enforcement. This was on Tuesday when he made this announcement at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, down in uh, in Arizona. 
and so part of this whole um, part of this whole immigration enforcement, just enforcing the laws that are on the books, and also increasing immigration judges in order to process the criminal illegal immigrants and keeping those who harbor criminal illegal immigrants accountable and prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law of sessions and now. So what is your opinion of everything that has uh, has developed here with the Trump administration's policies on immigration? Well, immigration, as you mentioned, is, is once again in the crosshairs of the policy debate. And uh, President Trump has outlined immigration reform as a cornerstone of his broader agenda to reboot America's standing. And so it, it can be looked at in, in, in two areas. One, uh, the focus is on enhancing America's homeland security. So from the Trump administration's perspective, doing a better job of securing and managing our borders and stemming the flow of illegal immigrants. Um, and also related to that is the question of public safety. So for those individuals who have crossed the border, um, who may have criminal records, continuing beefing up what, what uh, the Obama administration had started about deportation for those with criminal records. And so that's a key aspect of this larger immigration overhaul. Um, the second aspect, and from the Trump administration's perspective, is immigration, curtailing immigration is seen as a way to redress the job loss and some of the economic dislocation which has happened uh, in the American lower middle class. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that, you know, these jobs would have otherwise, these jobs that are now being occupied by legal and illegal immigrants would otherwise be held by Americans. Um, and we certainly can wade into that. There's so many facets to this to talk about. You know, immigration reform is um, a very complicated and knotty issue, and there are, are many different sides to it, um, which make it challenging um, to, to address. But it certainly is one of the most important policy reform issues the U.S. government has to contend with. And it's right up there with health care, tax reform, you know, national security concerns around thwarting terrorism. Immigration is in, falls within that top five. Um, and so President Trump is, again, taking a very heavy hand and some argue a hard-lined approach to it, um, but, but one that is necessary. Immigration reform and a debate around immigration reform is necessary. So we can go into detail in the conversation about the different facets of it. Right, and immigration is related, like you said, national security, economically, and there are pros and cons to – I mean, you've got to look at immigration, though, between legal and illegal because they're two different things. And in terms of the – Illegal immigration that's come into the country in terms of, uh, you know, sanctuary city policy. And, you know, there are a lot of mayors uh, started out with 300 jurisdictions. I think we're down to 150 jurisdictions that are not cooperating with federal immigration law. Well, you know, the reports that are coming out of the White House, the first two reports that we have, show that uh, MS-13 gang members, drug cartel members, um, murderers and rapists, convicted criminals – that have come into the country that have been previously deported multiple times. Uh, there was a case in uh, in Hempstead, New York, on Long Island, where uh, he had uh, sexually assaulted a two-year-old, um, and he was deported four times, came in a fifth time. He was rounded up and was sent out, but they come back. Um, and this is not just one case. I mean, you had the rape in Maryland in the high school and, and on and on. So uh, people look at this. I don't think a lot of people uh, realize um, that uh, some of the the sanctuary city policy is so um, is so damning to the uh, to the American citizens and also the legal immigrants in those communities. Uh, maybe you could expound more on on this type of national security policy that 
uh, Mr. Trump has put forth and your opinion on it? Well, again, this is a, this is a question of public safety, um, and it is a continuation of what began under the Obama administration. I mean, the Obama administration, uh, Obama was dubbed the deporter-in-chief. I mean, he has deported upwards of 3 million individuals with criminal records, right. um, higher than his three predecessors. And so you know, there, Trump is continuing that very aggressive targeting towards those with criminal records. Why is this getting more noise or has gotten a lot of more political backlash under Trump than Obama? Some of that has to do with the bombastic language um, that uh, Trump used during the campaign. Right, so, it was a you know, heated campaign. All Mexicans, you know, criminals and the bad hombres and things like that really um, did a great disservice. Um, I think in, in setting this discourse in the wrong direction, and it it it, it was very difficult for us to sort of get off uh, block number one to talk about you know what what immigration reform what needs to happen around immigration reform. Clearly, there's a public safety concern. So, you know, for a country that's dedicated to the rule of law, there's no moral or political obligation to show preference to those who violate the legal process. I think that that is universal, whether that's a Democratic or Republican issue across the board. So public safety. And there has been targeting towards that um, in deporting those with criminal records and preventing um, it doing a better job at halting the reentry. So that's one aspect of it. Unfortunately, the media is only focused on that aspect of immigration reform. Right. The more challenging issue that we have to really wade into is the economics behind immigration. And it's not just illegal immigration, but also the very large volume of immigrant flows into the United States. Um, clearly, we're seeing that there is an economic imperative. You mentioned earlier the sanctuary cities. Mm -hmm. No surprise, those cities, um, and, and there have been uh, mayors um, who've been very outspoken, mayors of these sanctuary cities have been very outspoken, Mayor de Blasio of New York, Mayor Emanuel of Chicago, Mayor um, Gassetti, I, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly, of Los Angeles. Okay, so these are mayors that are in large cities um, and states where they have the largest number of immigrant flows. Um, and that's really important. I don't believe that it is by coincidence that the highest concentration of immigrants can be found in the six states, which taken together account for roughly 40% of all the goods and services produced in this country. So again, six states account for about 59% of all the unauthorized immigrants. Which states are we talking about? California, Texas. Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. Um, and let's be honest that employers desire low-paid workers. Right. Cheap labor, um, higher profits. Cheap to labor, higher profits. There's also the other side of the coin about consumers. Consumers want low-priced goods. Um, gone are the days when Americans are going to buy things on credit saving over months to purchase that desired you know, consumer good. That's not mm -hmm. happening. Americans want products readily available, and they also want them at low prices, um, even if they're shopping at Walmart. And so there has been this you know, consumer-based culture that has arisen in America, uh, steadily growing you know, over the last you know, 40 years, but, but, but reaching a crescendo right now at this point. And so there's the employers who are seeking low-wage low, uh, workers and consumers who want low-priced products. Um, and how do we deal with that? And we're talking about 
key industries. We're talking about agriculture. We're talking about leisure and hospitality. We're talking about construction, landscaping, waste management. This is really important. Agriculture represents about a $985 billion industry in this country, Um, you know, California. So if we're talking, if we look at the discussion of a mass deportation of immigrants, that is going to have an exponentially uh, damaging effect on the U.S. agriculture sector. So we really have to think through how we go about executing this policy. Right. So it seems as if, and we're turning to Tanisha Tinglesmith, a global political analyst or, and a former State Department official in the U.S. government. Um, you know, when you talk about immigration, I was trying to make the separation between the criminal uh, illegals, the illegal immigrants, and then the immigrants, the legal immigrants, because um, that could get clouded in the conversation. And so you bring up a good point. If you deport all the immigrants, well, that's going to hurt us economically because there is uh, evidence and data to show that uh, immigration, that they play a big part in our economy. In fact, I think they're like 20% of the New York economy. Um, but when you have uh, criminal legal aliens, that to President Trump speaking about in terms of deportations because that poses the national security threat. On the economic front, um, you know, if you have any sort of uh, tax on on corporations, that's going to trickle down to the consumer. I know there was some talk. uh, President Trump did an interview on Fox Business uh, yesterday morning with uh, Maria Bartiromo, and he was asked about a border tax. And, and, you know, frankly, if you tax anyone at the – any corporation – um, or anyone at the border, that's going to trickle down to the consumer eventually, unless it's you know, unless it's a reciprocal tax that President Trump tried to clarify on. Uh, that would be the same tax rate that uh, China or any other country imposes on on American consumers. So eventually, it trickles down to the consumer, and if it's going to be consumer centric, then you have to have some sort of policy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to have uh, some sort of policy that uh, benefits not only consumers. Uh, but also workers, because consumers are workers as well. Exactly. And so this is where, again, you know, immigration is, is really a very complex issue, more yes. complex than certainly what's being presented in the media. Um, and immigration policy requires making choices. It, imp- it requires imposing criteria and establishing procedures. Um, and, and again, this is why it, it, it's so complicated. Um, public safety, again, that's a really important part of it. And I think that the, the efforts that um, I've mentioned that Trump has taken are a continuation of what Obama administration um, had really ramped up. That's one aspect of it. That's only part of it, right? In order to maintain America's competitiveness, we have to address some of these other issues, the economics around and some of the social concerns around immigration. That's really where the, the, you know, the rubber is going to meet the road. Right. And some of the things that we haven't really been able to debate because we're fixated on the public safety aspect of it. And again, I'm not negating it's important. I'm, you know, it, it of is course. critical. But it, 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 it seems as if, again, it's, but it's only one facet. The only facet, a facet, exactly, of immigration. And so one of the things that has to be debated is whether or not we should grant residents or permanent employment, uh, renewable or permanent uh, in, in employment classes is extensively creating an expatriate workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's important. The farming industry has been calling for that. So in essence, we're talking about a renewable work permit without the promise of citizenship. Okay, so uh, without, a, without the promise. So you wouldn't just give someone promises, citizenship. Right, and okay. that's what, exactly, exactly. So we're talking about creating extensively an expatriate workforce. 
All right. And that would be a great, great uh, aid to the uh, agricultural sector. Right. But they have to pay taxes, correct? Absolutely. Right. So and the parameters of that would then have to be flushed out. Right. So they would be beneficial on both sides. But that's one of the uh, uh, issues that's been coming from the agricultural sector, that right now the federal guest worker program, which is called an H-2A, and you know, we don't want to get too much in all of the acronyms, the U.S. government yeah. acronyms, but there is a federal guest worker program. But right now the process for bringing in temporary foreign workers legally is very complex. And um, it's often delayed because of a, a middle administrative bottleneck. And that doesn't move people through the process fast enough, especially given the very seasonal nature of agricultural production. Um, and so the agricultural industry has been calling for a more flexible system, you know, which keeps the number of visas uncapped that allows foreign employees freedom to move to different employees. So if they need to move to different farms and different sectors, what, so be it. Um, so that's something that needs to be worked out. And again, this may not include a provision or a pathway for citizenship. And that yeah. you think of a country like uh, the United Arab Emirates, and you know Dubai is a flourishing business um, city, and they are um, heavily reliant on foreign foreign labor. Um, and they have created an expatriate workforce, and that way they've been able to build certain talent. Um, and they've also been able to create certain economic benefits to the industries, et cetera, while protecting um, some of the state resources. And that, that's an issue because another side of this immigration debate has been the cries that immigrants are putting um, unnecessary burden on state coffers. What do I mean by that? So that immigrants are drawing down resources, state resources, whether that's welfare, whether that's educational resources or healthcare resources that would otherwise be earmarked for American citizens. And is that fair? Um, and is that sustainable? Is something now, given the swell in numbers of immigration over the last several decades, that we have to talk about? And so I would like to see, again, public safety is important, but moving to this question, what would you know, a renewable work permit without the promise of citizenship look like? What's the way in and what's the debate around that? Um, also, this clearly the process which is open, um, a simple process of gaining uh, or leading to eventual citizenship. That's also something that, you know, is clearly going to be on the table for those who desire to become American citizens and undergo the extensive vetting process, et cetera, and all the procedures that are required right. um, to gain American citizenship, that option is available. So one is not excluding, exclusive, they're not mutually exclusive, but it is another viable option. So and here's should... a very, yes. No, go, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Continue. There, there's also a, another um, concern, and this is probably the most controversial of them all, okay. is to reevaluate the issue of birthright citizenship. Um, we are yeah, that's the been only a topic in the campaign, yeah. It's been a huge topic in the campaign, and this is not the first time this has come up, right? Yeah. So if we're talking about what are all, some, so again, some of the multivariated aspects of the immigration debate, public safety, again, is one, but the economics is an economic imperative. You know, individuals are filling in needs within key sectors in the economy. Um, and the, but there's also the side, well, these individuals perhaps are um, taxing already stressed federal and state resources. And that 
brings us to this question of birthright citizenship. The United States is the only major country in the world to confer citizenship on everyone who's born here, mm -hmm. even if your parents are here legally. Um, and so perhaps it's time to reevaluate um, the efficaciousness of that. You know, this was a part of, it, it had a historical necessity at a particular juncture in American history. Right. So for your um, listeners who, who may not remember this fact of American history, you know, the, the birthright uh, clause was a part of the 14th Amendment. It was a citizenship clause, and it was to guarantee former slaves constitutional rights and citizenship. And it was passed in 1866. Um, again, very particular time, and this was in response to the Dred Scott case, which had denied constitutional rights and citizenship to those who were um, slaves. Sure. So that was sort of the imperative behind standing up birthright citizenship. They also, uh, they being the legislators of the time, had included naturalized citizens um, as a way to sort of um, benefit or favor to those um, soldiers who supported the Union Army, um, who were of immig excluded immigrant groups, excluded from citizenship. Um, so there was a lot of debate at the time in states like Maine and Massachusetts. It's a really interesting history. Um, but this was a way not to deprive the naturalized citizens the right to vote, um, you know, to work in the government's employ, et cetera. And again, this is a very periodized um, piece of legislature, uh, legislation. Excuse me. So it's questionable whether or not this still has merit in 2017. Yeah, so let me ask you your we, opinion yeah. on it. What do you What do you think? I mean, it seems like um, birthright citizenship, which is, you just gave the history of it, maybe it should be reevaluated. Uh, I have my own personal opinion, but let me ask you, someone who's, you know, been in government, um, do you think that that, is that even a current ongoing debate? Is that being considered? And number two, I guess it would relate to uh, public safety concerns in terms of, you know, people just crossing the border. Uh, now, there are obviously most cases they want a better life for their child, but then there are some national security concerns. And, if, and in this wave of nationalism uh, policies that has swept Europe, that it's obviously here in the U.S., people are saying, hey, listen, unless you're, you know, you're an American, uh, you know, from previous generations, uh, you should be coming in here the right way. And parents shouldn't just be crossing the border and allowing their kids to, to be born here for national security reasons, and then obviously, uh, you know, just being uh, American pride, I guess. It's something that has to be debated. I think this should be brought to the fore. Um, and again, if we can really wade into um, some of the critical facets of what it means to be a maintain American competitiveness and how do we do that, so right. much of this revolves around the economics. Um, you know, is it sustainable, given the volume of immigration flow um, into the legal and illegal at this point, for America to offer, quite frankly, um, American citizenship to every person who's here and has multiple children? How is that economically sustainable over time, mm -hmm. especially in the post-2008 post um, environment where you know, we're still very much recovering from the economic downturn, um, and many states are, are still struggling um, to, to get the, the budget back in line. Um, this, this is burdensome, and so it's something that needs to be considered. Um, at the same time of honoring the humanity of those individuals and dignity of those individuals who are really, you know, 
fleeing desperate situations on our in search of a better life and who have every intention to positively contribute to America. You know, um, you know America is a country of immigrants. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems quite ironic that we're debating right, whether or not we should we should allow immigrants and such, which I don't think that that's the core of it. It's just, you know, fine tuning um, uh, the, the, the aspects and facets of our immigration policy is right. I mean, very important. They're old laws. I mean, they've been in, they've been in uh, place for a long time and it's time to revisit them. And a lot of laws have been ignored, um, uh, in terms of, you know, the sanctuary city policies with federal immigration laws, um, not being, uh, taken up and you have a lack of judges in the system. So they're not getting hearings and as a part of a due process and part of our constitution as well. Uh, Tanisha Tingle-Smith, the, uh, global political analyst and former State Department official here on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast. Um, let me ask you, uh, in terms of um, bureaucracy in the government, um, you know, you've been in Washington, and I know I've asked you this in the past, but, you know, how difficult is it going to be for President Trump to put forth um, a real comprehensive immigration reform that, frankly, we've been discussing this for, for many years? This is going to be as big a challenge um, as with health care. Again, yeah. um, this is something, you know, Trump is, is not the first president um, to, to, to attempt to embark on immigration reform. There's also been a lot of legislation and, and legislation that really never saw the light of day. You know, as recent as 2007, and there was an immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform proposal um, that uh, Senator Harry Reid, uh, then majority leader Harry Reid uh, put forth um, that that didn't even make it to a, a floor vote. Uh, there was a Comprehensive Immigration Reform Act of 2006 that was sponsored by Senator um, Arlen Specter, and there was one in 2005. Even in 2003, senators, uh, the late Senator Ted Kennedy, had joined efforts with Senator John McCain to put forth an, uh, a program that was called the Secure America and Orderly Immigration Act. Yeah. So there's been a lot of attempts, but, you know, as, as we've just been touching on, and, I, and, I, and I'm underscoring this to, to, to make a point for, for the listening audience, there are many moving parts to this. And so when we think about the legalities, we think about, you know, the, the questions of birthright citizenship, we think about what does it look like to create you know, a renewable workforce. How does that work? What are the benefits without the promise of citizenship? And what, if it sounds like a great idea on the surface, we want to make sure that we're not then creating a legal underclass in this country. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, the, the sort of other side to, to, to offering such a provision. Um, you, you mentioned taxes, that's critical. Um, but there is, the, the economics are dominant. And, you know, earlier you mentioned about an incident of crime in Hempstead, uh, New York, which is a, which is a, uh, a middle-class community in Long Island, New York. And I think that that's a really good example um, to use because there has been a tremendous inflow of um, immigrants into coming from southern border immigrants flooding into Hempstead. Right. And Hempstead, the middle class community, but I would probably describe it more on the low, lower middle class rung. And so we have, because of our laws, if you are, if a child is born here, they are considered American citizens. And we also um, enroll any child who is here in our public schools, irrespective of their parents' citizenship. And so that has created tremendous pressures on the Hempstead School District. The volume of young people coming into the into the school and also periodically. So you would have, you know, sometimes 
5, 10, 15, 20 new students coming into a school on any given week throughout the school year. And to further combat, uh, compound the difficulty of that, you have children for whom English is not the first language. Mm-hmm. And this was a school district that was already struggling. This was a school yeah, a district terrible that was school already district. overtaxed and overwhelmed and was below state standards. And so now they're really feeling the crunch and the pinch. And how do we manage that? Um, it's what people in communities are talking about, is what they're feeling, um, and don't necessarily, haven't found an outlet perhaps to express that, or the politicians have not been really addressing what some of the, the day-to-day economic and social concerns that they are confronting. And so that's why this question of reevaluating birthright citizenship is important. Right. Um, and looking at the state provisions that we offer, state and federal economic provisions that we provide to le- illegal immigrants. Right, and that case in Hempstead. Now, I don't know whether the child who was um, assaulted was a uh, was born here, uh, but obviously the father was deported four times. You had because you bring up education. I just want to mention this, which didn't get much coverage. I know we talked about it. Uh, some uh, outlets did cover it after uh, it was brought to the forefront. Really, from uh, the Trump administration, did uh, bring it up, and uh, Press Secretary Sean Spicer had uh, made it a point to bring it up in a press briefing uh, without being asked about it. Um, was the Maryland school rape case where you had uh, two uh, men, uh, one from El Salvador, one from Guatemala, um, and their ages were, I believe, uh, in their 20s, were high school freshmen, or they were 18, 18 and 17, um, were high school freshmen, and uh, they sexually assaulted or, excuse me, raped a uh, a 14-year-old girl in a high school bathroom in Maryland. They didn't speak English. They were using a lot of school resources there to educate them. And then this happens, and you have students here are, are outraged. And then a lot of, par- uh, a lot of parents there um, who, you know, said, listen, uh, we need to – we can't allow – and then you have the anti-immigration rhetoric coming out saying really anti-illegal immigration rhetoric saying we can't, we can't have this in our school anymore. Um, and I'm afraid of, you know, my students' uh, safety. Um, so in education where resources are, are, um, are limited, um, the educational uh, in competition with other countries is, uh, uh, you know, been on a little bit of a uh, decline in terms of math and science and uh, has been, you know, in STEM uh, education has been tried to been brought back in terms of competing with uh, countries like China. Um, it's been it's been tough to, to educate these immigrants and then, you know, just you have something so horrible like a rape there that brings up the uh, public safety concern again. Um, it's all it's really all intertwined. It, it is intertwined and certainly intertwined on one level, but then is dis, dis, discreet in another. Right. So, again, the public safety issue, no tolerance for that. No matter where it is, particularly in the schools, there's no tolerance for that, and those individuals need to be, um, you know, persecuted at the, by the high, highest yes. extent of the law. Um, but but the economic burden um, that that we're talking about um, in schools, and what we're finding is that immigrants obviously are are, are going into communities where they have access to um, housing and low-priced housing. Um, so we're not seeing this play out in the more affluent areas, or the suburbs, or, or urban. Um, um, sections of, of major cities. We're, we're talking, as we mentioned, the, the case of Hempstead, New yeah, York, again, which is, a, which is a town in Long Island. Um, but this is emblematic, I think, what you'd find around the country is that you're seeing um, this large immigration flow into communities really on the lowest rung of the middle class 
um, where um, immigrants are able to have access or access um, housing. Um, and we are finding you know, the pouring into schools that are, are largely in disrepair. Um, you know, this is for a separate conversation, a separate policy debate. But, you know, again, when we're outlining the top five policy uh, uh, concerns or areas of reform that are necessary, education is one of them as well. Um, and so, you know, the public system, you know, public education is, 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 is buckling in, in, in major uh, areas around, around the country. Um, but, but this is very burdensome. And, and here's another issue that's very controversial that I think we have to um, get to a point where it's okay to debate it. And right. debating it does not mean that um, you are, again, denying anyone their humanity or their dignity, but to really talk about the economics and the social implications of what it means of some of these issues around immigration. And I'm referencing English as a second language um, and the programs they have in schools. This, too, has received a lot of backlash. And I'm sorry, I, I do disagree strongly, um, both vociferously disagree with the language that President Trump really opened and framed this debate around because you know, we haven't been able to really get to this issue without feeling that we are accusing others because, again, you're making these declaratory statements about all people and so on and so forth, and the sort of rabble-rousing doesn't allow us to get to what these issues are. The economics behind these English of a second language programs within schools. I am not an educator, um, so I cannot speak to the merits of these programs over time. But what we see in the communities, again, using the Hempstead School District as an example, is that when we're having such a large influx of students coming in, Spanish-speaking students coming into the school, the, the, the schools are forced to set up additional ESL programs. Um, and at what cost? So you mentioned, you know, we're trying to maintain American competitiveness um, in science and math and STEM research, which is another booming area. Of, um, and one of which the United States certainly can store in the area of innovation, we're seeing those types of programs compromised and schools having to make very difficult budgetary choices. Because of the language um, and so barrier. that's something that has to be debated. Because of the language barrier, they're not, they're not comprehending the math and science. Well, not only the language barrier, but also the resources. So if you have an ESL, English as Second Language class, you have to hire an instructor um, who is trained in both languages. You know, these are all questions of resources. Um, and as, as a non-educator, you know, I can't speak to what is the best way for children um, who start school for whom, again, English is not their primary language. Are these English as second language programs um, necessary? For how long? Uh, is it more efficient to have them in immersion programs? This is why it's important to have a debate. Um, and not only at the federal level. We really, this is taking it back to town hall meetings, oh, yeah. bringing in individuals from the civil society, bringing in educators, bringing in law enforcement to talk about this and really work through what this looks like at the local level, presenting it then to our state representatives and then moving up the change to something that ultimately would be enacted as a comprehensive immigration reform policy um, by, by our, our you know, U.S. legislature, the Senate and, and the uh, House of Representatives. This is really important and this needs to happen. You know, I have my opinions for sure, as we all do, but I think that reflects perhaps one person's vantage. And what I recognize around this is that there are, are valid sides and valid perspectives, differing sides. And so what I'd like to see, again, is sort of more inclusion 
around these issues, um, about how we manage this. And, and it's, it's critical. So if Trump has brought this to the fore again, then so be it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I disagree with the language around which we brought it to but the, the fore. Poli- but, but, but here the we policy are. makes but sense. Here we are. Um, Tanisha, the policy doesn't make sense. We have to reform it. We have to reform it. No, I'm not it. saying okay. the current policy. I'm saying, well, we're at least taking steps to put ourselves in the in the right position. I mean, he's been focusing on the national security, as has the media, um, but there is uh, there is an economic side to this, too. And, you know, you've seen jobs already starting to come back. Um, a lot of uh, the auto companies, General Motors, Toyota, made a big announcement earlier this week. Uh, they're retaining American jobs really because of pressure from from Mr. Trump and saying, listen, if you go, we're just going to tax you, and then that's going to hurt everybody. So uh, there's been pressure put on on the auto industry especially, and they've been able to uh, maintain American jobs, and I'm sure a lot of them are immigrants. You know, and, and when we find the largest number of immigrants, again, working in the agriculture sector, you think of farmhands, um, on average, $16, $17 an hour mm-hmm. um, on the books. <laughs> um, those jobs are not going to catapult one family into the middle class no. and certainly um, not sustain a family in the middle class. And the key word and there so, is on the books. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, on the books. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there is um, a necessity to redress how to bolster the middle class, which has been under a tremendous amount of pressure, especially in a post-2008 economic environment. Whether or not there's a direct linkage between these low-wage jobs, and again, I'm not making the argument that they should not be available to Americans, but I'm I'm suggesting I'm not sure that that is the way um, to redress the job loss um, that's being experienced by the middle class workers. You know, so much of what they are contending is, you know, modernization and um, the automation and um, that's part of it. Yeah, that that's a huge part yeah. of it. And you know, changing dynamics in the manufacturer supply chain, um, definitely some aspects of global trade and changing patterns of global trade, of which the United States was, you know, a, a principal arbiter. You know, I don't want to suggest that um, you know, the United States has been victimized in any of this, and perhaps American middle class workers have been, but the U.S. led this effort. Um, around global trade negotiations. So, um, you know, if it's something, again, we want to redress, but it, it, served, it served an economic and security imperative at the time. If that's changed, then certainly we need to, to, um, to do so. Yeah, but I think some adjustments, some adjustments probably need to be made because uh, you have, obviously, technology, which it can't account for. I mean, technology is good, but it's also bad because it's replaced a lot of American workers. And in the same regard, uh, you know, when you have the lowest labor participation rate since the 70s as of uh, the end of 2016, you know, and people on food stamps and, you know, and out of work, well, you need to find a way to get them a job and not just, you know, a low-wage, you know, job at McDonald's. Let's try to get them a career. Well, that's not going to get a career. Neither is a farmhand, which was now being occupied by um, the immigrant um, workers. And so, you know, agriculture, from the agricultural sector, we hear – constantly that we are in desperate need of workers um, and you know we don't see Americans coming to, to do these types of jobs anymore um, you know for reasons we certainly can speculate about and perhaps the largest reason is that 15 16 17 dollars an hour you know isn't really going to move the needle in providing for a family and so these discussions 
um, about retraining in the workforce. Um, the United States has moved um, systematically from a large manufacturing country into a service sector economy, service sector-based economy. Yeah. And so how do we retrain, um, you know, a workforce, uh, particularly those in their 40s and 50s, um, who are still, you know, at the helm of households and, and, and need to provide? Um, how do we maintain their status? Um, but also offer them some type of retraining um, as a way to better reintegrate themselves into the changed global economy. That's important. And, and that's I think a challenge. It's, in, it's a huge challenge. I mean, and this is something that I remember vividly, the then Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, under Clinton during the first term, was so passionately decrying. He was sounding the clarion alarm, you know, almost warning and, and pleading with, um, you know, politicians and even within his own, he's a Democrat, within his own party and, of course, across the aisle, that more needed to be done about this. And that was 25 years ago. And so fast forward, here we are. And again, experiencing the economic dislocations of 2008. And we have to find a new way to do this. Um, Harkening back to the sort of glory days of the 1950s and 60s is grossly unrealistic. Um, in part, the United States' economic rise post-World War II was done in very artificial circumstances. The rest of the developed world, industrial world, was decimated in the aftermath of World War II. And so the United States was able to fill in gaps that we saw um, really start to experience competition in the 70s when Europe came back online, when Japan came back online. And we've been kind of in this grind to find our space ever since. Um, where there are other competitive countries, and we have to figure out you know, the best right. way to find our niche and retrain our workforce. So those big factory jobs you know, that once occupied cities like Detroit. I mean, Detroit was the glory city, the golden city oh, yeah. of America in the 1960s. The, totally, the poster totally child changed. of America in the 1960s, but unlikely to resuscitate in the way that we thought at that time. And we have to think through new ways to do it. And, you know, I'm emphasizing a lot because we're about rethinking because America is at a critical inflection point in a lot of these issues. Um, and it's, this is really the tough stuff about maybe what's worked to get us to this point um, globally um, and also domestically needs to be reevaluated. And immigration is central to this issue. And so what my hope, in my opinion, if you ask about what I'd like to see, I'd like to see the public discourse move to addressing some of these issues. I yeah, cannot I, underscore enough that we talked about the economic imperative. This is really the nuts and bolts of immigration. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, that's why we want them. That's why we're here. This is what the burden is. That's really important. It's a huge part of it. People want – I mean a lot of people don't um, necessarily have national security on the front of their minds. I mean I may, you may, but uh, in terms of the regular folk, they they work. They want to work. They want to put money uh, – food on their table, and they need uh, money to save on to. And if they don't have a job, they can't do those things and want to put their kids through good schools. That's really the core of people's you know everyday lives. And uh, and so you know, you've seen some blue-collar jobs come back uh, – the coal mining industry, manufacturing, but at what point does that reach a um, you know the top, and at what point is it okay now? Technology has uh, has diminished jobs so uh, you know so much to this point that we can't grow more, and we need to find other ways to expand the private sector. Um, I do just want to move off of this for a second. Tanisha Tingle Smith on the program today, and you've been so gracious with your time, so I appreciate it. Um, a couple of things that I want to get to is um, immigration patterns because obviously this whole immigration debate um, kind of goes back – it goes back a couple of years 
But if you want to talk about the 2016 campaign, you had an omen of uh, Brexit that happened where Britain is currently in the process of leaving the European Union and uh, immigration played a big role of that. Uh, you know, the uh, border security was a big part of that as well. Um, and they're in that process and there's still debate going on in Europe. And you've seen some uh, vicious terror attacks there. Stockholm, the most recent on, on Friday, last Friday, um, a truck terror attack there. Um, and people are, are wanting to focus just on their country, uh, nationalistic uh, policies, on both the national security front and the economy front. Um, how would nationalism, uh, I don't know what your opinion on that is, but what is, uh, what is the best way to move forward to uh, promote the uh, economic security and um, econo- you know, to thrive economically and then also uh, secure our nation uh, as we're seeing uh, really take place in a in a wave of of uh, nationalistic um, policies across uh, across the world now. Well, it's especially ironic um, that we've seen a revival of nationalism in in an age of globalism, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's it's certainly brought to the fore um, some of the benefits um, or some of the challenges of globalization. It's curiously interesting that. You know, we're seeing the countries that were um, really spearheading the globalization efforts um, now attempting to put the brakes on it. Um, and I, I think of France. You know, France is going to the polls on April 23rd. And, you know, the French election and the, the discourse in the election is, is very much uh, eerily similar to our 2016 uh, presidential race. Um, where there is a lot, one of the leading candidates now from the far right, Marie Le Pen, is mm-hmm. arguing, you know, French for the French. <laughs> and uh, similar to the America First uh, campaign uh, uh, slogan of, of our President Trump, and, you know, Marie Le Pen is arguing that we're not done being French. Um, and France, like many other countries in Europe, um, have been burdened with the challenge of great immigration flows. Um, we are experiencing the largest migration flows since World War II, and the vast majority of those individuals are uh, fleeing to find uh, political asylum um, in in Europe. And France is is really um, been burdened by this, um, and so they're trying to deal with these swelling numbers of of immigrants. And very similar to what we talked about uh, just a little while ago in the United States, they haven't recovered from 2008. Yeah. Um, and so the French economy is slowed. The question of competitiveness is really a central one to the French um, French political economy. And how do they revitalize the economy at this point? Um, you know, changing labor. Um, and it's also a debate for the French because they have a very generous uh, state social security program. Um, and, you know, do they want to change that? And doing so would then really um, alter some fundamental ways about French work life. Um, and there's something that they are, are trying to think through. There's also the security issue. You know, France has the largest population of Muslims in, um, in Europe. Um, and that in of itself is not problematic. But we have had through that a window of individuals who've been able to take advantage of some of the French um, asylum laws and have caused havoc and carried out heinous attacks in France. Why, right, we've had radical so, Islamic terror attacks there that have been just devastating. 
absolutely devastating and um, a series of them. It hasn't, and, and yep. one will be more than enough, but there's been a series of them. And so that's raised a question. Similarly to the United States, we're seeing individuals who are, again, because of access to housing, are um, flooding into communities in France like the United States that are already underserved, resource underserved. Um, and we're seeing some rush up uh, with the police. We're seeing you know, unemployment rates that are very high, undereducated. I mean, how do they begin to incorporate this? And again, a parallel to the United States, where here in the States we may be debating, um, if not nationally, certainly within communities, debating about Spanish language, um, the predominance of Spanish language, and the challenge that is to maybe notions of American identity. You're seeing it play out in France. Um, where questions of some of the Islamic religious practices, especially around how women are attired, have stoked notions of, of French nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not uh, schoolgirls who are of the Muslim faith um, should be legally allowed to wear hajibs, and hajibs is a, is a, a conservative head covering that pious Muslims uh, adorn um, themselves with. Um, whether or not this is a front of French national identity. Um, and so it's, it's, it's playing out on, on, on a lot of different fronts, and you've seen that in Europe. It's certainly France right now. As they go to the polls, for the first time you have a candidate from the far right um, who has, who has a, a viable chance of winning the presidency. And that is a huge sea change in uh, French political, uh, political um, uh, party organization and, and, and politics. Right, um, and, we, and part of the debate with that, to your to your question, is to whether or not France should stay within the European Union. And France is central to the European Union. I mean, without France, it would probably collapse. So that's an issue that um, should one of the more conservative candidate or the far-right candidate prevail in the election. For France, it's two rounds. So the first round is in April, and the second round is in May. Okay. So in you know in the May vote, the May ballot, if uh, a far-right or conservative candidate prevails, it is possible that um, you know the, the French public it would be taken in a referendum similar to what we saw in in England or UK, uh, a vote on whether or not to remain in the European Union and what that you know the concept of that. Well, that's a whole nother conversation we'd have, right? About, right. Well, let me know, ask you a question about that. Union. Let me ask you, Tanisha, if, um, do you think that the European Union is sustainable? Do you think that it will, um, that it will last another, uh, if we will even get through this uh, decade or, or next decade with the European Union intact? It's difficult to say at this point. I think so much of it's going to depend on um, the who prevails in these in the forthcoming elections in Europe, as we you know, just mentioned in France, yeah. if we have one of the two candidates from the right or, or, or conservative candidate win the election and they take it to a vote, it's up to the French population, the French populace. If they decide to pull out of the European Union, well, that, that, that's calamitous for the European Union. I mean, again, France is an anchor state. I mean, Germany, of course, is the dominant economy um, in 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 the European Union, that that's going to radically change things. And so right now, it's really up to what happens when you vote. Yep. And uh, let me let me reel this back to the U.S. before I let you go, Tanisha. Um, we have this uh, this wall that is uh, looks like uh, President Trump has seen some of the first um, the first plans uh, from uh, companies that are uh, proposing to. 
build the wall on the southern border would be a physical barrier, and of course, that would also include uh, surveillance and increased ICE border patrol agents, all part of the immigration plan, uh, mainly on the national security front. Um, there are some challenges to this, and including a debate about uh, you know whether they could put uh, the wall in certain areas. They may have to use eminent domain. Uh, that's a part of this debate. They may have to uh, you know figure out what they're going to do in terms of the uh, the river there and some of the uh, some of the land uh, challenges as well. But um, we've seen actually a deterrent at the border uh, in the first two months of the Trump presidency. Uh, almost at 100 days. According to uh, CNN, a uh, 35% drop from February and a 63% drop uh, from March 2016 uh, in terms of uh, illegal border crossings. So uh, do you think that these numbers, that this is this deterrent is good? And will this continue to drop um, if, you know, even without the wall in place at this point? Well, we... The wall was a symbolic effort at this point, and, and the question around the wall was who's going to pay for it. You know, the Mexicans have insisted that they're not paying for it, and it's unlikely that you're going to have Congress paying for it either, the U.S. Congress you know, putting the bill for it. Well, we do have a trade so, deficit with Mexico, so that's been right. part of you know part of that conversation. That's probably not going to happen. And again, the discussions around the wall um, you know, distract us and belie some of the um, important facets of what immigration reform needs to look like or some of the issues that's involved in it. Um, as we've been talking about this afternoon, um, we're not going to see, there has, certainly has been um, a slowdown in, in, in detentions along the border and apprehensions along the border, excuse me, not detentions, apprehensions on the border. You know, there have been ice raids, um, and there certainly is stoked a degree of um, fear and concern within the immigrant communities on both, uh, both sides of, of the border. Um, and uh, that's likely to stall um, immigration for the short run. Um, we want to ensure that in these detentions and captures, again, we're honoring the humanity and, and dignity of individuals. We want to make sure you know, a lot of these detention centers and facilities are being run by, by private prisons with no public oversight and accountability. So we want to make sure um, that we aren't, you know, there are no human rights violations happening as we try to readjust this policy. Um, but that's only short term, um, because until we address, and, and this is probably a fitting place to close this, until we address the challenges um, that are emanating out of these Central American countries, we're never going to stop the flow. Um, right. People are going to find ways. You know, there's an expression, you know, either comply, you flee, or you die. And that's the reality for most um, living in these countries. What we have seen is that the numbers of Mexican migration, which was the largest immigrant flow from the southern border historically than Mexican, that number is actually netted out. So when we're talking about the swell in immigration, we're talking about individuals fleeing from uh, northern border states, that's Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, mm -hmm. are coming in the droves. What we haven't really talked about, it did with some episodic um, press coverage, is the number of unaccompanied uh, uh, minors. Children right. and a lot of them are being five, smuggled six, in. Seven, smuggled in five, six, seven, eight years old, unaccompanied, um, making their way from Guatemala, you know, to the you know, attempting to make their way to the United States. What desperate conditions would you find yourself in that you, that any family member would allow a child to travel in the hands of you know either adult handlers or other groups of children? cross-country. It's unthinkable, unimaginable to most Americans. But the conditions are, are pretty egregious. The level of violence in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala 
you know, they suffer some of the highest rates of, of homicide, transnational gang mm. violence. These countries are still suffering in the wake of civil war from the 1970s and 80s, and, and some began in the The 60s. sad part is, though, um, it's such a difficult trek, and then there's, you know, sex trafficking that sometimes these kids are sold, uh, you know, into sex slavery on the on the route coming in, and um, they're, the, the handlers are bringing in opioids to our country, so... There is, uh, you know, and that, and you know, we talked about uh, mainly uh, the economy and uh, national security, but you have a major drug epidemic with these drugs coming in from some of these Latin America countries as well. Absolutely, and so when we talk about public safety, it's on both sides of the border. Right, right? this is a humanitarian crisis that needs international response. Again, that you had sixty-three thousand children, unaccompanied children, traveling, and the situations where they were victims. Of, of sexual abuse. They were victimized. You know, and how do we as a, a country of conscience ignore that? Um, but there's also a matter of addressing and working in an international, uh, through, uh, with international cooperation and our multilateral partners to, to target um, fixing and development assistance in these countries. And in many ways, and I know this is going to be, again, another controversial issue. The United States has an obligation to do so. A lot of those civil wars, you know, it was, I, I think many Americans forget that, you know, Central America was one of the hot spots of the Cold War in the 1980s. I'm actually old enough to have remembered, <laughs> you know, um, uh, Secretary Haig, which was the first Secretary of State under, you know, then-President Ronald Reagan, you know, declaring that, you know, this was a critical er area for American interventionism, and the United States thought it was our obligation to thwart perhaps the rise of communism and intervened in supporting governments and providing arms for decades in these countries. I mean, we remember the Iran-Contra scandal. I mean, sure. you know, Nicaragua, Honduras was a staging ground for the U.S. backing of, of, of the country. We can debate, you know, in a historical sense, you know, um, the the missteps of American foreign policy, but the ramifications are still real for Central American citizens. And so we have fragile government, and we have high crime rates, and you're absolutely right to call them these transnational gangs that are trafficking people, drugs, weapons, and that's where the public safety comes in. I'm probably, I don't have the statistics on it, but the individuals who are coming here with criminal records it would not be surprising if they were linked to some of these transnational crimes. They uh, are. A lot, of, a lot of MS-13 gang members have been uh, deported and have been living here in sanctuary. So, you know, it's um, – I think maybe the communication has to be better from the White House to communicate. I, I thought that – I mean, at least I know, but uh, that's me. I'm kind of a news and political junkie. But um, I think it needs to be communicated to the American people that, listen – we're not deporting everybody, but we're taking we're we have to take our interests into our own hands. Uh, and if we see that uh, there are criminal illegals living among us, we have a duty to protect Americans. And maybe that needs to be communicated better that they're dealing with criminals here, that they're dealing with uh, some of these horrific crimes. And you know, it's tough to hear about, but. You know, if you're living in a bubble and don't understand that, it's very easy to get caught up in some of the rhetoric and some of the um, some of the uh, not some of the empty rhetoric, I should say. You know, that's not um, uh, that doesn't have much substance to it. And point fingers and listen to if you listen to the media coverage, a lot of times you only have five minutes at the most 
to cover a story and they're not covering the substance they're covering the uh the the uh scandal part of it instead of uh the actual uh policy that has been written and put out into uh into directives and and law in many cases and memos well you know, that's what's so important about um, um mediums like yours that allow for a more in-depth conversation and and we just barely scratch the surface I and know. we're just providing um you know the surface of some of these issues to think about right um but but we've been able to do so in a much longer format with with 30 seconds we're not moving past you know oftentimes the very salacious headlines and again that's why it's important to damper down the rancor of this this type of how we're framing it is very important especially when we're talking about um discussing in the media and most people getting their information from media sources where you're spending, you know, at most two minutes on an issue. So they're all complicated and lots of moving parts. But the U.S. engagement um, and U.S. relations with the Central American countries is critical. We need cooperation. And again, setting up the wall and, you know, calling all Mexicans, you know, bad hombres and criminals doesn't make for good cooperation because we need the Mexicans. The Mexicans are also confronting this because the, the individuals are being trafficked through Mexico. Well, so Before me... they get to the United States in terms of geography, you know, they're coming through Mexico. And so we need to work with the Mexicans in increasing their security in terms of their public safety as well. Drug trafficking is something that, you know, affects us all. And so this is an area right. um, where we can see greater cooperation. And we're going to need international cooperation. We need to work with the United Nations. This is an area where the United Nations is important. Um, and, 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 and as people that are going to be involved on the ground in trying to fix some of these really, really overwhelming situations in the Central American countries. And again, we're talking about now our immigration flows just for clarity for your listeners that are coming out of Central America's Northern Triangle Wrangle region. Excuse me, we're not really talking about the Mexicans. No, but they're coming up we're through Mexico. We're talking about El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, principally right. those three countries. And we've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of criminals being com uh, that are coming in there smuggling children, and th that's who's being, those are the people who are being apprehended uh, by the ICE raids, by the way. I mean, that's uh, from the numbers from the White House and, well, really the, uh, I should say, the, the Department of Defense. Um and uh, you know, and Jeff Sessions is uh, is office there. Um, but uh, it, let me just challenge you on one thing. You know, in terms of uh, the rhetoric, because I think people um, they don't they don't necessarily give uh, Trump the chance to to talk, or they just don't want to hear it, and they're so vehemently against him. And it's really a divided time, and this campaign was very divisive on on both sides. You know, when he made that initial statement, there was such major controversy and he had all these, you know, companies dropping his brands, which I think they just wanted an opportunity to drop him anyway because he ran for president and they didn't want conflicts of interest. Um, and being such a high-profile figure. But, you know, when he said that, uh, he did say, you know, some are good people and the people that are coming in that we need to work with Mexico, that they need to work with us. And listen, he's been very – he's hammered on the Mexicans. He said, listen, they need to join with us, and there's been really um, vicious uh, rhetoric on both sides. You had the former president of, of Mexico, uh, Pena Nieto, who, um, uh, who has said uh, that – um, you know, we're not going to build the uh, the effing wall and all that stuff. But when he went down there uh, around the time of the first presidential debate, they had a uh, – he met with the, the current president there, and he said uh, we will, um, you know, we will work together to stop the flow of illegal immigration because it hurts both countries. And there was a – they recognized that, and it seemed to be like there was a change in, in tone for both sides that, okay, listen – 
Both countries have to work together. We have problems. But it doesn't seem like there's been any discussion so far of the first 100 days about um, stopping the drug flow that's coming in through Mexico. Mexico's authorities need to help out. It doesn't seem like they've been so uh, on top of their efforts there. And then on our front, you know, it's been coming in through our uh, our border, and Mexico hasn't really helped us much on, on their side. But I don't know how much of a conversation has continued since that September meeting. I don't know for that specific conversation. Uh, we know that the Mexicans, uh, what we know for sure is that in order to combat this challenge of um, illicit trafficking, whether we're talking about drug trafficking or, or persons trafficking, then you need the cooperation of the Mexicans. Um, there's just no other way around it. This is, and in terms of the drug flow, again, you know, you, we have to sort of get to the root causes. Uh, similarly, when we're talking about immigration, legal or illegal immigration flows, until we find a way to work, and maybe it's developing, not necessarily footed by the United States, but uh, solely, but, uh, you know, something similar to a Marshall Plan that's engaged in the redevelopment of post-conflict, post-war countries, right. we're going to see a continuing outflow. With regard to the drug trafficking, as long as there is a demand, there will be, there will be supply. And so what are some of the social, I mean, this is another, again, for another topic, right. but, you know, what are some of the social ramifications of why we're seeing drug use so high in this country? Um, you know, we are having a heroin epidemic we haven't seen in decades. Um, you know, it's not being produced here. Prescription drugs and opioid use is, is really um, alarming, alarming. And this is not something that is confined to poor urban areas. This is afflicting affluent suburban families and, oh, yeah. and mothers and, and children. So, you know, we need to talk about that and healthcare um, assistance around this issue of drug addiction. Um, because as long as there's demand, there will be supply. And with the drug trafficking, because of the nature of drugs, sales and so forth, it, it just evokes this type of violence. Um, and it is of the very nature transnational. Well, let so me ask you. Is, let me ask you real quick. Yeah. If you cut off the supply, obviously there's demand. But uh, if you can do some sort of prevention programs, I'm not sure how exactly that would uh, be placed and how that would go into fruition. But if you have some sort of prevention program in the U.S. and then, um, and I know there are prevention programs, but you know, step up the efforts there. And then also tackle the supply and and really ramp up efforts at airports and wherever these drugs are being you know smuggled in. Um, would would tackling the supply and I don't know how that would be done. Maybe you have an idea on that. Would that uh, would that help in curtailing this drug epidemic when you have I mean you have people Suffolk County in New York and and uh, in New Hampshire. I mean I've saw I've seen people inject themselves. That's how um, in her in New Hampshire. That's how. Uh, out in the open it is and it's just really sad because it's it affects uh you know regular uh, middle class folks and children absolutely i mean we're you know we're having an epidemic of addiction to to prescription drugs um and then that escalates into um opioid misuse and um it, it's it's really a, a pandemic um there have been efforts i mean the united states has been combating the war on drugs for my wow for decades right and so there have right. been efforts to to cut off the supply and work you know intervening in, in suppliers from south america and colombia and peru etc yeah it's nothing we, new we've been doing this now for no it's nothing new i mean we've, we've been trying to do this for a long time but um 
you know, and I, I don't want to be overly simplistic about it, um, but um, or repetitive. But as long as there is a demand, there will be a supply, and so we've got to do a better job of dealing with this challenge of drug addiction. Um, and you know, at one point it was fashionable to use you know recreational drug use. Um, that, that certainly is no more. We're past that period. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, drug um, drug addiction um, is is a, is a health crisis. Um, and I don't know if we've put the resources into. It. I think that would probably be an interesting conversation to have. Um, I hope you would find another guest. I certainly would listen um, in <laughs> on you know what are the, some of the challenges around this. Um, you know, from the health healthcare perspective. Um, you know, how is this happening? How did it get so out of control? How do we how do we do this? Is this about medical care? Are we over medicating people? Um, you know, is there just too easy access to prescription drugs that then escalate into something else in the current iteration right. of drug abuse that we're talking about? I mean, there's always been, you know, the other abuses of other drugs, but right now we're we're confronting an opioid crisis. Um, and so, you know, is, is it having to do with, again, the, the um, overuse, overprescription of, of certain types of drugs? And if you have a toothache, they give you, you know, uh, Percocet. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Percocet, excuse me. So, I, you know, is, is that part of the challenge? So, again, we're kind of wading into different things now, but um, that about somehow dampening and, and getting a hold of, of the causes around the demand are an important part of what the United States can start working on within our borders. And, um, again, I think the answer to this is going to require cooperation with our partners. Right. Um, and there's I th- no way we're going to have an effective program by without cooperating with the Mexicans. And I think what mm-hmm. they saw as such an affront was this wall was symbolic of, um, you know, stopping the flow of immigrants, but also cutting off communication with the Mexicans. And at least that's how it was interpreted in a symbolic sense. Yeah, and I don't think um, it was intended to be that way, but, you know, that's... Uh... If President Trump, a wall, uh, wall is a barrier. A wall is a barrier. Right, a wall but is a barrier on many symbolic. But we have borders. And we do have borders, but it was you know a symbolic a symbolic barrier and um, was interpreted as such. But it's unlikely to happen, at least in the short term, um, because the Mexicans aren't paying for it. And guess what? Now there's the United States. But well, we'll um, see. They can't even well. get health care running. So, uh, you know, between health care well, and tax reform. The Republicans and... have to figure that out within their party and right. the Democrats. Are on, on well, Democrats well are not going to support that. To come together. Um, and there have been an onslaught of issues um, in, in this first hundred days. It's been a dizzying array of issues that have come to the fore. Um, almost it feels like on an hourly basis um, to, to keep a tr- track of, of what's been happening. So this immigration reform is, um, I think, by, by in sense of closure, is a really important and necessary endeavor, um, one that both Democrats and Republicans have embarked on in recent years, but haven't been able to find a consensus, not only within their respective parties and across the aisle, but also a national consensus. Um, and it's an interesting space, right, because America is a country of immigrants. America's greatness was built. By the, the, through the diversity, on the backs of the diversity of its people um, and the very notions and identity around what it means to be American are multi-ethnic. Um, and um, are, so this poses maybe an interestingly different space for us to begin this debate than the French or the Swedish or the British. 
Um, so keeping with our American tradition of, of having historically more open borders, which has been greatly beneficial to uh, making America the country that it is, um, but also revamping some of these um, aspects of immigration uh, laws and procedures and processes so that we maintain our competitiveness. Um, that's something that works best for America, as well as the individuals who are coming in. We don't want people coming and to create an even larger underclass and all of, you know, mired in urban or suburban blight is, is not beneficial to any of those involved. Um, and so to figure out how do we renegotiate that. And at the same time, finding more constructive ways to engage these host countries that um, are in desperate conditions um, and do so through a multilateral um, approach to right. find ways to, 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 to resurrect development and to put in place sustainable, responsible governments. And it's in the interest of the United States, obviously, uh, for the sense of immigration in the sense of our regional cooperation and in a sense of history. You know, once again, perhaps Central America um, will become, you know, an important part of the American foreign policy outlook. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think in this uh, day and age of radical Islamic terror and with uh, the borders aren't just on the, the southern border, you have north border and you also have uh, really every airport is a border. Um, and in today's day and age, you know, people coming in wherever we need to, we need to understand who they are. We need to make sure that our vetting processes are in place and then you know, and I'm going to let you go, but, you know, I know we didn't talk about the Middle East because that's not your forte. Yeah, the Middle East um, has uh, a multitude of issues, and, you know, where President Trump is changing a little bit on foreign policy in terms of the campaign rhetoric. And it goes to show you that, um, you know, America has to set an example for the world. And, um, you know, if there are all these human rights violations, and we talked about just immigration in Europe and terror attacks there, which hits very close to home, the Middle East can't be ignored either. Um, and you have people who have waged war on freedom, um, and that's not uh, what we stand for. And, you know, it, we have to set that example, which uh, seems to be a, a little shift in, in policy from uh, from what the campaign rhetoric was. And now it's uh, we're saying, listen, we need, to, uh, we need to show other countries that we're not going to stand for uh, human rights violations, and America's going to, you know, stand by on on the side of uh, of uh, liberty when it comes to uh, when it comes to people's rights. But um, Tanisha Tingle Smith, uh, thank you so much. You've been so generous uh, and liberal with your time this afternoon. Global political analyst and former State Department official. Always great to have you on, and uh, we'll have you on again soon. All right. Thank you. I look forward to it. Have a great rest of the day. All right, so Tanisha Tingle-Smith on the Neely Kirchner Show podcast. Thank you to Tanisha for coming on today. And that wraps things up for the program today. Um, a lot of foreign policy, I know, uh, it's it's very complex, not just uh, immigration, but in the way that the world operates. And the more you learn about it, the more you understand some of the policy, really, obviously, the political machinations of it all. Um, can really, uh, you know, can really be grabbing the headlines and can be, you know, sexy in terms of uh, the discussion and fun to talk about. But in reality, you can't operate on politics. You just can't. You have to operate on good public policy and you have to understand that you're serving the American people and what's best for the country. And that means operating peace through strength and putting America's interests first and American freedom first. 
Uh, no show tomorrow for Good Friday. Uh, have a good Holy Week. Happy Easter. And everything that that means with uh, Jesus being uh, risen, if you celebrate and you understand uh, the, uh, the importance and the meaning behind the holidays, not just good food. And uh, we will, pending any breaking news, talk to you on the podcast on Tuesday. No show on Sunday. Uh, we'll talk to you on Tuesday unless there's major breaking news. But until then, stay safe, God bless you, and God bless America. The Neil A. Caruso Show podcast is a production of Caruso Enterprises. Engaging, informing, and entertaining. Passion-driven, factual content that makes a difference following Neil A. Caruso on social media. And log on to neilacaruso.com to sign up for Caruso's comments, newsletters, and be the first to know.